0: You know, today is a special day for me because one year ago to the day was the last time I was in this room with a pulpit. The difference was the room was filled with people and no masks. That was exactly a year ago, the last time. The following week, David Briggs preached to an empty room, and it's been strange ever since so he's he's blaming me for the shutdown, but I'm thinking it was him <clears throat> so we're tenth chapter of luke's gospel um, you know the last time uh the last time I gave a message, the message was about a maniac that became a missionary. Well, today we're going to look at missionaries again, so the Lord is continuing to make missionaries, and that's the theme here today. We're going to take a look at evangelism. So we're going to have to move rapidly because we have a lot of material to cover. The first 16 verses, now I don't know what Drew was thinking when he gave me 16 verses. This could easily turn into a 10-part series. But let's move, so let's hang on and get going here. So Let's start with prayer as we enter God's Word. Lord, we're so grateful that you've called us, you've chosen us, Lord. And this morning, Lord, we want to continue our worship with the study of your Word. So we just pray, Lord, that you would teach us by your Spirit, Lord, and your Word. And you would just mold us, Lord, and shape us into the instruments that would glorify you this day. Amen. So our outline... We're going to divide our text into three parts, and we'll unfold these as we go along. First of all, he starts with the motive necessary for being a kingdom missionary. That's verses 1 through 4, and then verses 5 through 11, we're going to have the message of the kingdom missionaries, and third, the warning by the kingdom missionaries, verses 12 through 16. So let's read together the first four verses. Now after this, the Lord appointed 70 others and sent them in pairs ahead of him to every city and place where he himself was going to come. And he was saying to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out labors unto his harvest. Go, behold, I send you out as lambs in the midst of wolves, Carry no money belt, no bag, no shoes, and greet no one on the way. Now that is a very practical, straightforward text, but it's loaded with some wonderful application for us. Since our Lord Jesus walked on this earth, at the time he was here and since then, there's always been people attracted to Jesus. There have been people curious about Jesus, interested in Jesus, people that wanted to show respect to Jesus. And there's even been people who believed that Jesus was the savior. But there's also always been people who have been unwilling to follow Jesus on his own terms. And do you remember what those terms are? Let's turn back a few verses to chapter nine, verses 23. He was saying to them all, that's all the people in the crowd that were following him and heard him preach and saw him do miracles. He was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. So if you really are serious about following Christ, that's his terms. In other words, Jesus was saying to them, if you want salvation that I offer, if you want to enter into the kingdom of God, if you want eternal life, you deny yourself. And that word denial is literally to disown someone. That means you refuse to associate any longer with the person that you are. I say, abandon everything and follow me and take up the cross. So that's to say that's the end of you and the beginning of following Christ. We confess him as Lord and we follow him whatever the cost is. No, not everyone was willing to do that. And John chapter 6 says there were many disciples that walked with him no more because the stakes were too high. The price was more than they wanted to pay. And then at the end of chapter 9, you remember uh, Pastor Dave's message from last week, the last few verses, we saw there three would-be or so-called disciples. And they said, Lord, we'll follow you anywhere. And these were men that were classified as disciples, even to the point where they believed in him, but they were not willing to follow Christ on his terms. When the stakes were higher than they were willing to pay, they disappeared. But on the other hand, here in verse 1, we have some true disciples who said, anything you want us to do, we will, whatever the price. So from the large group of people that were following Jesus, he picked 70 missionaries. He's already picked the 12 apostles. This is in addition to them. Now, while you and me cannot be apostles, we can see ourselves in this group. These are ordinary people that don't seem to have any special qualifications. And if we remember 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we find out what kind of people God chooses. He chooses the weak, the nobodies, the nothings, and the base to do his work so no man can boast. The kind of people God chooses have no power to pull it off so God gets all the credit, all the glory. No special qualifications required except one, and that's to be a true self denying cross bearing follower of Jesus. Now, as we look at this commissioning, it's going to take us all the way down through verse 24. So, more than half of this chapter is dealing with these 70 people. Now, in the first four verses, we see the motive the motive needed for these kingdom missionaries and they are transferable to us but they were unique it says in verse 9 that they could heal those that were sick they could cast out demons it tells us in verse 17 now that's not transferable to us but all the other components of their ministry is the spiritual dimensions the attitude the message the warning the joy All of that applies to us. So if you're going to tell people about the kingdom of God, it's going to start with an attitude. It begins in the heart. You could train people till you're blue in the face. You could give them all kinds of information, techniques on how to share your faith, strategies, methods. But effective evangelism is done by highly motivated people. It's not about training, it's about motivation. So let's set the stage in verse 1. Now after this, after what? These things, chapter 9. So after chapter 9, which we saw the commissioning of the 12, the transfiguration of Jesus, the closing of the Galilean ministry, he's now on his way down to Jerusalem, and there's less than a year left before his crucifixion. The Lord appointed 70 others, so out of the crowd that moved with him, when he was in Galilee, now he's heading to Jerusalem, out of that group he chooses 70, for what? It says sent, sent out to every city and place where he himself was going to come. They were advanced scouts, they were his ambassadors, they would go into a town and announce the arrival of the coming king. They went out two by two giving the message that the Messiah, the Savior, the King is coming. And they would be saying why he had come, getting the people ready. They were to proclaim the good news of the gospel of salvation through the King. So they're not unlike us. That is our responsibility as well. We are kingdom missionaries in our day We're not telling the people about the Messiah who's coming. We're telling the people about the Messiah who has already come. But the ministry is the same. Go into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature, and make disciples of all nations. That's the instruction that the Lord gave his church before his resurrection. So the instruction for these 70 is very helpful for us because we are virtually called to the same responsibility. We are witnesses of Christ in the world. And that's really the main reason that we're here. We are here in the world to tell people that Christ will forgive sinners. He will forgive those who repent of their sin and believe in his son. See, our fellowship with God here is imperfect. Our worship is imperfect. But in heaven, everything we do will be perfect. So why does God leave us here? Because there's one thing that you can't do in heaven that you can only do here, and that's evangelize the lost. So where does evangelism start? It starts with a motive. Let's go to the heart of the deal right now. The first necessary motive is compassion. It isn't training. It is compassion because of the desperate condition of the lost. It's a heartbreaking concern over the lost. Let's look at verse 2. He was saying to them, The harvest is plentiful or great, but the labors are few. And he used these exact same words when commissioning the apostles. We don't have enough people to go into the harvest and do what needs to be done. So what motivated this statement by Jesus? I think Matthew gives us a good insight on this. Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 and 36. Jesus was going through all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed, dispirited, like sheep without a shepherd. Everywhere the Lord went in his ministry, he was moved with compassion. His ministry... Even his miracles were all moved by compassion. You know, Jesus did miracles to prove who he was, to validate his statement that he was the son of God. But there could have been several ways that Jesus proved that he was God. I mean, he could have flown up in the air, spun around, he could have created an elephant. There's lots of ways that Jesus could have proved that he was God. But if you'll notice... It's always the compassion. He looks at the condition of the lost people. And that's what motivated everything that Jesus did. Remember when the Lord's compassion prompted him to stop a funeral procession? Back in Luke 7, verses 12 and 15, it said, When the Lord saw her, this was the widow. The widow that had lost her only son. He felt compassion for her and said to her, don't weep. And he came up and touched the coffin and said, young man, arise. The dead man sat up, began to speak, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. We have Isaiah's description of Jesus as a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. Over and over again in the Gospels, it will say that Jesus was moved with compassion that's the motivation. Now the word used here for compassion, I won't try to pronounce it because it has 14, literally 14 letters long. Um, it refers to a deep pain that comes from sympathy for, from, from sympathy or, or affection. It, it has to do with abdominal pain. It makes you s- s- sick to your stomach. And we, we've all experience some type of grief or feelings for someone that's made us physically physically ill. So Jesus is overwhelmed by the sympathy for them and he tells the disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. So when we say harvest, what are we talking about here? Well it's not the image of the harvest like in John chapter four. What does he have in mind? What what is the harvest he's talking about? Well, the Lord's compassion was prompted by his knowledge of what awaits those who refuse to repent. So this is the harvest of gathering sinners for final judgment. Now, the Jews would be very familiar with this. The prophets had talked about the harvest. Joel, chapter 3, verses 12 and 13 Let the nations be aroused and come to the valley of Jehoshaphat. I'll sit to judge and all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come tread, for the winepress is full, the vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. That's the harvest. His heart aches because they are headed for the final harvest of judgment. And the New Testament follows this imagery also. The Lord himself in Matthew 13:30 says, "The wheat and the tares grow together until the harvest. I'll say to the reapers, gather up the tares, bind them in bundles and burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn." And this is clearly explained a few verses later. In Matthew 13, verses 39 to 42. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. So just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall be the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth his angels. They will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks, all those who commit lawlessness, and cast them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. On the island of Patmos, the apostle John in Revelation, he saw a vision of the harvest. The son of man having a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud. Put in your sickle and reap, because the hour to reap has come. That is the harvest. That's the harvest of judgment. So the Lord looks at these people because he sees all the way down into the future, to the final harvest, and it makes him literally sick to his stomach. And to compound the matter even more, verse 2 says their labors are few. So this is where evangelism begins. It begins with a compassionate understanding of the huge problem. I heard a sermon on TV the other day, and we've all heard this same sermon, similar. The guy was saying, would you like to be delivered from stress? Would you like to be delivered from anxiety? Would you like to be delivered from the issues of life that trouble you and annoy you and steal your peace? Well, I felt like saying, well, then don't come to Christ because you might not be, right? We all have anxiety. We all have health issues. We all have problems in this world. But if you want to be delivered from hell, then come to Christ. And that leads us to a second critical motive, and that is prayer. Well, how are we going to do anything about it? The Lord says in verse 2: Therefore, beseech, beg, plead with the Lord of the harvest to send out labors to his harvest. See, we don't just pray for the salvation of people we also pray that the Lord will raise up missionaries and as believers we are commanded to pray for the salvation of the lost you know this is a very convicting verse um, I'd until I st- was studying this this text I forgot about that yeah pr- we pray for the lost we pray for our loved ones our friends but how often do you pray that God will send out more missionaries I went to the uh, the prayer team and asked them do you get a lot of requests and they said for this and they said no we we handle 50 60 prayer requests a week but the prayer team does pray that is part of their agenda to pray for more missionaries so that's something we should be doing by the way the lord of the harvest that's an interesting phrase who is the lord of the harvest well john 5 tells us the judge John 5 tells us the Father has committed all judgment to Christ. Christ is going to be the judge. Now, this is amazing. The Lord himself says, pray to me, ask me to send messengers to preach the gospel so sinners can be delivered from me. I'll even go beyond that. The executioner himself is executed to save people from his execution. That is the wonder of the gospel. The executioner dies for the ones he was to execute. Compassion and prayer are essential in evangelism. Verse 3. Behold I send you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Not even sheep. No. Lambs in the midst of wolves. Now To me, this is not a very good recruiting speech. I mean, if you want to figure out a way to get people to sign up, uh, I don't think this is it. Like helpless lambs in the midst of a wolf pack? See, they're only as safe as the strength of their shepherd. And I love the honesty of Jesus here. He never lowered the standard, did he? He says, it's not going to be a bed of roses. It's not going to be easy. You're not going to be staying at the Ritz-Carlton. It's going to be a cross, and you're going to have to take up that cross. Look at verse 4. Carry no purse, no bag, no shoes, and greet no one on the way. This is real simplicity. It's exactly what we learned back in chapter 9 when he said to 12 out. So why is this necessary? Well, this was time for boot camp. This is where you learn you can trust God. Go without any excess baggage. Because this mission is of such urgency, it's to be done with speed. There wasn't much time left. And by the way, he says greet no one on the way. Well, that's kind of rude. Well, what does he mean? He's saying I don't even want you to stop. This greeting isn't just hey, hi, how you doing. This greeting is to make a meal with someone, to get to know their family, get acquainted, build a friendship. No, he's saying don't get distracted. Don't depend on making relationships with people that could provide for you. This is a lesson of total trust and complete trust. So let's take a look now at the message in verses 5 through 11. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. If a man of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. But if not, it will return to you. Stay in that house, eating and drinking what they give you. For the labor is worthy of its wages. Do not keep moving from house to house. Whatever city you enter and they receive you, eat what is set before you. And heal those who are sick and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near you. But whatever city you enter and they do not receive you, go out into the streets and say, even the dust of your city which clings to our feet, we wipe off in protest against you. Yet be sure of this, that that kingdom of God has come near. So as we look at verses 5 to 11, the actual message given is at the end of verses 9 and 11. They were to say, the kingdom of God has come near to you. Now, that wasn't the whole message, but that was the thrust, basically, of what they were to say. The kingdom is here. The kingdom of here is here because the king is here, right? You can't have a kingdom without a king. So that's the message, the gospel message. And they were preaching the exact same message that the Lord preached, the good news of the kingdom, And the news is very good. The news is that your sins can be forgiven and you can be reconciled to God. Now, kingdom. Now, we don't know very much about living in a kingdom in America, never having lived under a kingdom. And you might remember that the threat of living under a king caused the American Revolution. Anybody remember that? No. Mickey? Mickey does. Okay. (laughs) Now, without being too technical, a kingdom is a realm or a territory ruled by an absolute monarch. That is to say, it's a form of government which the will of the people has no role. The duty of the people is to submit. The duty of the people is to obey what the king commands And this is true of the kingdom of God as well. God does not solicit anybody's opinions. God does not have focus groups. God does not take polls. So the greatest form of government is a monarchy with a perfect king who is always just, perfectly kind, perfectly wise, perfectly powerful. He's perfectly everything else. And not only is he a perfect king, our king's will is that everything work together for good to his subjects. So, what we're asking people to do is to come into a kingdom and submit their lives entirely to a king who has revealed his will on the pages of scripture. It's not about self satisfaction, it's not about self-fulfillment now you might have noticed everything today is political it's hard to have a conversation without politics sneaking in there somehow I had a person ask me if I was a Republican and I said no and he says well you're not a Democrat are you and I said no he says I got it you're a libertarian nope Well, what are you? I said, I'm a monarchist. I worship a king and I belong to his kingdom. See, we might be in this world, but we're not of this world. Just a reminder, we have a light touch with this world. We're here to serve the king. So the 70 went out to talk about the kingdom of God. And we see two possibilities. Either people said yes to the good news or they said no. And that's what comes out of this very simple passage. The message of the kingdom of God, of the gospel is either for peace or punishment. This is very straightforward. If you believe the message you receive, peace with God. If you reject the message, you receive punishment. So verse 5 gives us a positive response to this gospel message. Whatever house you enter, first say peace to that house. So that's how you find out if they're worthy. In a parallel passage in Matthew 10, I think this helps us explain this. Matthew 10 verse 13 tells us, If the house is worthy, give it your blessing of peace. So what did it mean, worthy? Who is worthy of the message? Well, we would say in the idiom of Romans 2 a true Jew, inwardly, right? Those who were trusting in the living God and, were looking, and was looking forward to the coming of the Messiah. Maybe somebody that had been baptized by John the Baptist, whose baptism of repentance had prepared them for the coming Messiah. So he's telling them, go to the ready heart, go to the one who is seeking the kingdom and the king. So the message was simply this. The kingdom is near because the king has arrived. That's why Romans 5 tells us we have peace through God, through our Lord Jesus Christ. On the other hand, verse 6, if not, it will return to you. So if you offered peace, he didn't want it, you leave. That's all. Go somewhere else. This is very much like what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. Don't cast your pearls before swine, right? Don't throw holy things to dogs. Now, why would he tell them to stay there? Verses 7 and 8. He's telling them to stay in that house or in that city and receive what is set before you. So don't be looking around town to find better accommodations. And there's a very good reason why. This was about proving the integrity of the messengers. Because it was very typical of false prophets, false teachers, and they were everywhere. They would be looking for a place where they could get money and then move on. And most false teachers, or all false teachers, are always in it for the money. So he's telling them, don't ever give any idea this is about you. And then in verse 9 he adds, And heal those in it who are sick. So the Lord gave them that power so they, people would know that their message was from God, telling them the t- truth. They knew it was the truth. Now in Hebrews chapter 2, let's look at that for a minute. Hebrews chapter 2, we'll turn there later, but it says that salvation we shouldn't neglect was confirmed by signs and wonders. Signs and wonders confirmed their message. It confirmed Jesus' message. But today, our ministry is validated also by one great miracle. Our ministry is validated every time we preach, every time we witness. Your ministry is confirmed by one great miracle, and that's the miracle of inspiration. That's the miracle of the Word of God against your message. And it can always be compared to see if it's true. But secondly, and we can't ignore this, verses 10 and 11, it presents the other side. Where there is rejection of the message, it brings punishment. Verse 10 tells us, but whatever city you enter and they do not receive you, here's what you do. You don't sneak away quietly in the night. You go out into the streets, it says, to right in the middle of the street and the place, and you make a public announcement. Make it known that they have rejected the king of peace. And then say this, verse 11, even the dust of your city which clings to our feet, we wipe off in protest against you. Can you imagine that vivid thing going on? So in the ancient Near East, this was the most open expression of contempt for someone. So he's telling them, you find... Those who will hear, you give them the truth, and the kingdom will come in peace. And the ones that don't hear, you give them the truth, the kingdom is still going to come, but it will come in punishment. Yes, the gospel is the good news, but it's the worst news to those who refuse it. Notice nothing here says if they reject You go back and retool the gospel. You make it more palatable, more seeker-friendly. No. So we've learned about motivation, and we've seen the message. Our last part here comes the warning, verses 12 through 16. So turn for a moment to the 10th chapter of Hebrews. And I think this is a very important point. part of Scripture for us in this discussion. Hebrews 10, verses 26 through 29. Scripture says, For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of truth, so you've heard the truth, you understand the truth, the truth of the gospel, but you keep on sinning willfully, you continue in rejection, It says, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. There will be no salvation. If you reject Christ, there is no way to be saved. All you have then is verse 27. A certain terrifying expectation of judgment. But notice verse 29, and here's the key. How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant? So if you think it's going to be bad for the people in eternity that rejected the law of Moses, it's going to be worse for the people who have rejected Christ it's going to be worse for those that have rejected the gospel. And the more you know about the gospel and reject it, he says, the more severe will be the punishment. So to make it very practical, being in this church, hearing the gospel is high-risk behavior. You'd be better off to jump out of an airplane with an umbrella. or, But rejecting the the message, the consequences are forever. Now you say, why are you telling us this? Because this is the exact point of the text. Let's read it. Verses 12 through 16. I say to you, it would be more tolerable in that day for Sodom than that city. Woe to you, Shorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, They would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will be brought down to Hades. The one who listens to you listens to me, and the one who rejects rejects you rejects me, and he who rejects me rejects the one who sent me. The message is very clear here. The more exposure you have to the glory of Christ, the more potential judgment you you may receive if you reject it. Now, the Lord listed six cities, three Jewish and three Gentile, and then shockingly proclaimed that the Jewish cities would receive severe judgment in that day. The city of Sodom. Now, Sodom is known to everybody. Sodom is a byword for evil and perversion. And it was destroyed in the most unbelievable destruction of fire and brimstone recorded in the Old Testament. And the cities of Tyre and Sidon, they were given over to idolatry, to greed, all kinds of wickedness. And the Jews hated these cities because not only did the prophets say, that Tyre and Sidon was literally one with Satan, these two cities are the ones that sold the Jews off into slavery. Now the New Testament cities mentioned here, they will be punished, but Jesus says they'll be punished more. This is a powerful, powerful indictment. So how do you end a witnessing opportunity when you give the gospel message to somebody and you get shut down how do you end it what do you do next what is usually the final parting thing we usually say i will pray for you right that's certainly legitimate but what does jesus say to do We just read it in verses 12 through 16. The parting word that Jesus wants the 70 to give is a warning. It's not an affirmation, I love you anyway, although you can say that. That's not the parting word. It's not, I'll pray for you, but you certainly should say that. The final word in an evangelical effort is a warning. And here's the warning. My friend, it will be more tolerable in the judgment for people that have never heard of Jesus Christ, then it will be for you just having heard the gospel and rejected it. Better you should have never heard this. And then he says to them in verse 13, If the miracles had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. If they saw what you had seen, they would have repented. So why wouldn't the Jews repent? Because self-righteousness is the worst condition of any. It's harder to reach a person who doesn't think he has a need. Religious people are the hardest of all. Verse 15, and you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? This is strong. He says, Capernaum, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking you're going to heaven. You're not going to heaven. You're not going there. The final words, now that you know the truth of the gospel, if you reject this, the punishment is greater than the worst of the worst who have never heard what you've heard. And if you reject this message, no matter what you think, you're not going to heaven. That's the message well, you know, God's loving and he's merciful and maybe he'll broaden the road and don't you think he'll let a lot... No. You might think you're going there, but you're not going there. You will be brought down to Hades, he tells them. And you know what's interesting about this? Capernaum. Capernaum was the headquarters of Jesus' ministry in the Galilee. They saw and heard Jesus more than anybody So notice verse 16. Now this is going to get personal. We've been talking about cities, but it says the one who listens to you listens to me, and the one who rejects you rejects me. And the one, and he who rejects me rejects the one who sent me. So it comes down to what an individual does with the gospel. If the me- if the message is rejected, so is God. So there are going to be people who listen. And the idea of listening here is to hear with faith and repentance to believe. And that's why we want to make sure that our message is we are faithful to the clear message. So it's fine to say I'll pray for you. It's fine to say I'm concerned for you. But it's necessary to say, I warned you. Having the truth, you have the greatest exposure to a severe judgment. But at the same time, we plead with men, don't we? We plead with men to be reconciled with God. To be faithful to the word of God, a gospel presentation must not only promise heaven, but also the threat of judgment. When we finish our service today, outside, to your right, there will be a prayer team out there. And if you need to do some business with the Lord, these precious people would love to pray with you and help you. Any prayer requests that you need, please stop on the way out. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your powerful words of Scripture, that you were given us the ministry of reconciliation. You have given us responsibility and privilege of being your missionaries, preaching your gospel. Lord, you've allowed us to be your witness, and we want to thank you that, Lord, first of all, you've saved us. You've brought us to faith and repentance. We thank you that we can speak the truth of your scripture. And we thank you, Lord, that you speak through us. And we know the gospel is powerful for salvation for those who believe. Lord, we ask that you would make us faithful, not only with the right attitude and with an accurate message, but with a commitment to warn those who have rejected you. We thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen.